In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This is our 10th episode, so Amy and I are rather excited about having done 10 shows. Woohoo! Woohoo! How are you tonight? I'm alright, how are you? Yeah, very good. To celebrate doing our 10th show, what we thought we would do is do a hour-long edition of uh, things we came across this week. So we're going to try and cram in 10 articles that we came across that uh, really have no real relation to any kind of clinical work that we could be doing. Possibly. Uh, just stuff that we think is just interesting and obscure and uh, it was all about psychology and behaviorism and all that kind of stuff. So it should be a really fun show. Uh, just also to announce next week, I've uh, it will just be me on the pod. I'm interviewing Dr. James McCracken, who's a medical oncologist. Uh, we had a really good conversation about all the aspects of working in oncology and what's that like. It's uh, really interesting. So tune in to that one. Cool. Uh, so what we're going to do for the show is we're probably we're just going to uh, tag team with different topics. So I'm going to kick us off. Yep. First article is Nostalgia and Identity in Song, song Lyrics by Bacho and colleagues in 2008 in Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity and the Arts. So I went hunting for articles on nostalgia and had no idea it was such a huge topic. There is so much research. I could have done all 10 articles on nostalgia. You're right. No idea, did you? No, I've never, I've never even really thought about nostalgia as yeah. a thing. So apparently it was conceptualized as a disease until the first half of the 20th century. The descriptions kind of sound a bit like anxiety, depression, crossed with a kind of longing for the past. Yeah, right. Um, so a lot of sort of physical symptoms that accompanied that really? feeling. Yeah. And then later in the 20th century, then it was expanded to just be talking about regret or sorrowful sorrowful longing for the conditions of a past age. So yeah, right. closer to what? So like as an individual's an individual's experience of like a period in their life or like an era? Well, so there's two types. Yeah. One is the personal, so yeah. your own history, and then other the other type is historical. Yeah. Nostalgia, so either for a time that you lived through or a time before that. Yeah, so two things jump straight to mind, which yeah. is make America great again, mm-hmm. right? And this kind of like phony kind of remembrance of a ta- glory time that may actually never really have been. Yep. And the other thing is that Woody Allen film, I think it's Midnight in Paris. Yep, and he goes keep, back to different time. Yeah, keep going. He he goes back to the time period that like he thinks is amazing. Yeah, and then like he meets someone there, and then they go back further into. Yeah, and each person has like a different historical point yeah. that they go. This was the best. This was the best decade and the, and, to be in. And one point he's like, "We can't go back there. So there's no antibiotics." <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's sort of the idea of nostalgia. Yeah. People have differed in whether they think it's a maladaptive or adaptive construct to have so whether it helps you kind of build a sense of your own identity and consistency in your life and it's actually quite adaptive or whether it's dysfunctional to spend your time looking back on the past and wishing for that so the idea of this study was to have a look at nostalgia and its link to identity they also brought in the aspect of lyrics and music in that music often evokes quite strong emotions and also for a lot of people it evokes a sense of social connectedness. Mm. So the idea being that those three constructs are kind of related, that 
you develop your identity in the context of others. Mm. Nostalgia is often with relationships or context of others. Yeah. So they got people to read through four sets of original lyrics that they'd written for the study. Uh, One recollected childhood but was something solitary. One was childhood with a friendship. One was childhood plus then the impact that that childhood memory had on identity development on their own. And one was childhood identity and with others. Okay. Making sense so far? Sort of. So they asked people to compete a bunch of measures about nostalgia and about a sense of identity. And essentially what they found was that men reported less of the historical nostalgia, Mm -hmm. so the nostalgia for a previous era that they not necessarily lived through, than women, but there was equal amounts of personal nostalgia. And then they found that people who were high in personal nostalgia were higher on a sense of normative identity, so their identity in the context of other people. Yeah, so if you had a high sense of that sort of um, nostalgia for your own history, then your identity was constructed more in relation to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. And it was reversed for those high in historical nostalgia. Yep, so So then... It was more about the solitary stuff for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For people who are higher in personal nostalgia, uh, they also found that the lyrics were more meaningful, more relevant, and they liked them more when they were related to relationships. And people higher in historical nostalgia found the lyrics more relatable and likable when they're about solitary issues. So I thought I'd wrap it up with uh, what I thought was an incredibly nostalgic quote that they ended their article with, which was, the painful acknowledgement of the irreversible passage of time is tempered by the ability to visit the past in reverie and the realisation that the irretrievable lives on, woven into the fabric of the unique self we have become. (laughs) That's lovely. There you go. It is interesting when you think about that, like the nostalgia for the past mm. and the, that there's some memories that you can and do return to and they're like an old friend. Yeah. And, and they will actually be quite comforting. Yeah. And they feel quite defining or quite sort of there's something about them that's sort mm. of... Yeah. Being enjoyable to think yeah. about certain stuff. Yeah. You know, like even just certain clients that I've worked with where they, you know, they kind of... Yeah. Pop into your head for whatever reason. And yeah, it's absolutely. A, a client who died, unfortunately. But yeah, <laughs> one of the sayings he would say was like, oh, it's wrapped. Wrapped is a dunny roll. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard that saying before. Yeah, and it was great. You know, he's a lovely, lovely man. Yeah, it gives you a bit of a lift. Yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So the article I was going to go with is, well, actually, let me ask you a question first. Yeah. Do you eat chili? Yes. Spicy food? Yeah. Are you like a high level? Like what, what do you get out of eating spicy food? Or, or why do you eat it? Uh, hmm. I enjoy the taste. I don't enjoy when it's really, really hot and I get sort of, you know, sweaty and tingly lips. That's yeah. kind of, I hit that threshold and then yeah. I'm done. Yeah. But yeah. What's the hottest, hottest thing you've ever eaten? Or like oh, anything come I don't to know. Mind? So, I, I can picture the the feeling like of my lips going numb. Yeah, that's probably the hottest. But I don't, I can't remember what it was that I ate. I think it was a stir fry. Yeah, I, I had this like a Thai stir fry. Yeah. Maybe? I, so I, on my honeymoon, yeah, we were in this island. It's a very remote island, and there was like one or two restaurants on this island. It was we we ordered this 
car- like this curry thing. We knew it was going to be hot, whatever, right? And <laughs> there was like table service was appalling. There was like maybe one or two other people mm-hmm. in the thing. So, and then, and they weren't. So getting any kind of water was like a real problem. Yeah. This thing was so hot that what I remember distinctly is at some point I kind of came out of like a high. <laughs> Like okay, yeah. Like like it like, and then it w- it was so painful, like eating this thing. Yeah. And then, and suddenly kind of came out of it a bit, and then I was like, I want to kind of go back there. Like, and I tried to keep <laughs> eating some more, like to get the pain. So was it like a dissociative thing, or was it more of like a hallucination, or a... it felt more like like a good like a drug drug induced effect. Huh. Is that what your topic is about? So the topic is about behavioural measures of risk-taking, sensation-seeking and sensitivity to reward may reflect different motivations for spicy food liking and consumption. Hmm. This is by Nadia Burns and John Hayes and it's in the journal Appetite Hmm. in 2016. So, the journal Appetite. (laughs) Apparently there's a journal called Itch as well. Like it's all about itching. So if you're listening to this at home, you probably actually just started scratching. Yeah, I was just feeling a little. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So there's different reasons for eating food that has an aversive sensation. Mm-hmm. So there's many different hypotheses. Gen- genetics, oral anatomy, physiology, desensitization is, is a theory. You know, you get desensitized to it, so you eat it more. Yeah. Look, this article, just before I continue, incredibly well referenced. If you want to look at an amazing piece of scholarship, mm-hmm. this is an article. So they talk about social cultural aspects, so the exposure, desire to be perceived as an adult, eating spicy food, desire to be part of, you know, cultural customs, that kind of stuff. You know, and while sort of there is an innate aspect differences, great variations in intake and sensitivity to capsicacin. I think mm-hmm. that's how they say it. I'm just going to call it chili for the rest of the article. Yeah. They wanted to look at the variability of personality traits associated with liking spicy foods. They talked about the sensation seeking, thrill seeking, maybe tray anger and a few other things. But there's been some methodological issues within the literature, sample size, types of measures that they've used. Did they go extroversion as well or not? Uh, not in this study. Hmm. I was so, thinking about this, you know, sensation seeking versus being overwhelmed by stimulation. Yeah, right. Yeah, no. Hmm. So they looked at spicy, liking spicy food and personality traits, these behavioral measures of risk taking as well as self-report measures. And they looked at the different pleasure response type because there seems to be different kinds of ways in which they, people respond to hmm. hot food. Great exclusion criteria. One of them was like, you have to have no pain issues. But another exclusion criteria, no cheek, lip or tongue piercings. So, huh. I'd not read that in an article before. Makes sense though. Yeah, it does. Well, I don't know. I, I used to have a tongue piercing. Doesn't, didn't change I suppose anything. it's healed, isn't it? It's not like a... Well, but it's healed fresh. up as soon as you got it in. Yeah. So, like, or like once it's come down. Because hmm. otherwise, hmm. otherwise I'd be talking like this. <laughs> um, so, sample 103... 26 of those got, were male. They used strawberry jelly. Hmm. That was three, if, if I'm getting it right, three different levels of spice. Mm-hmm. So like nothing, low and high. Mm-hmm. And so they used strawberry jelly because so there'd be no food associations okay. with, with other stuff. You would evaluate 10 jellies. Uh, you would rinse your mouth in between. With you would, water? 
Yeah, yeah, they or called milk. it like RO water. I don't know what that was, but it was just, they rinsed it. Hmm. And then there was a time of three minutes between each administration. You'd rate intensity and liking. Then they had these measures of sensation seeking, sensitivity and punishment reward. Another thing about risk taking, then they got them to do this like balloon analog risk t- task where mm-hmm. you would blow up a virtual balloon and to see whether it would pop or not. And oh, so they had to stop before it Stop with it and then popped. you would, and the person who got the most points doing that, uh, got went into, everyone got went to running for an actual cash prize. Okay, so yeah. So there was actual incentive. Mm-hmm. And then they did a follow-up questionnaire on types of foods they consumed, stuff like that. Long story short, so there was no effect of chronic desensitization. They didn't seem to think that that was a thing. Sensation-seeking was associated with remembering liking spicy foods and of liking spicy foods in the test, right? Mm -hmm. So they suggest that there was two types of responders that exist. So high liking of chili was related to high sensation seeking. And so they seem to think that there was like an innate reward for eating spicy food. Mm -hmm. There was some kind of like, they like sensation, so they like eating stuff. And then there seemed to be this other group that were high in sensitivity to reward. So the other explanation that they had was that people who are high in sensitivity to reward and and or risk-taking, mm-hmm. those constructs were associated with like lifetime or their, their yearly intake of spicy food, but not actually their liking ratings in the test itself. Of the okay, study. yeah. Yep. And so what they seemed to think was that there was like a socially mediated aspect to the intake of their spicy food. Hmm. So if you were, had a sensitive to reward yeah. or you were a high risk taker, yeah. then you would eat chili. You would have higher levels of chili consumption food. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were high in sensation seeking, yeah. you're, you're, the mechanism for you eating lots of chili was that you got something out of it. There was like an innate kind of thing. Hmm. So it was kind of like really cute behavioral Interesting. study. Incredibly well referenced. Which camp do you fall into? I reckon I'd be in the latter camp. Yeah. The, I think there's also like, for me, I think it's about kind of like showing that I can do it. Yeah. Like, so it's, there's it's, a determination yeah. when there's, you eat. Yeah. There's like a, food. there's like a mastery. Hmm. Like for me, it's about mastery. Yeah. Same thing was like with oysters. Mm. Like first time I had an Can't oyster as an adult, like, so it's like, oh my God. But then like everyone talks about oysters being this amazing thing. And then over time it's like, okay, I've got to learn how to eat these things. Now I love them. What do they taste like as someone who's allergic to seafood? Uh, like salty gloop. It's, it's weird. I'm glad I can't eat them. <laughs> They're really good to have with champagne. Mm, well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I also in my wanderings this week started looking at articles about first names. Because I was thinking about <laughs> some, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not all about you. <laughs> no, I was thinking about people I'd worked with, people who I'd come across just in day-to-day life who had unusual names and whether that had any impact on their life. So I live in inner city Melbourne. Yep. Hipster Melbourne. Yep. There's some interesting names at my children's crèche. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so this article is called Unfortunate First Names. Effects of Name-Based Relational Devaluation and Interpersonal Neglect by Gebauer and colleagues in 2012 in Social Psychology and Personality Science. So this study, they first of all talked about um, various research that's been done around 
first names and sort of the impact on first impressions. And it's been studied in sort of occupational fields, educational, interpersonal relationships. There's a whole bunch of it that's quite sad and also striking about race and that the sort of connotations, it was mainly done in America around sort of traditional white names versus... Traditional black names. Yeah. And about sort of ratings of intelligence or of capability or social value, that sort of thing. Mm. And constantly finding patterns where the white names were rated as higher in those traits than the black names. Yeah. Yeah. So they were interested in finding out about unpopular names or unlikable names. So they did three studies. Uh, The first one they called Kevinism. So (laughs) I should say before I get started that all of these studies were conducted on an online dating platform in Germany. The first one... Of course. Of course. (laughs) The first one they got participants to complete a questionnaire which was... Uh, which required them to list their first name, a measure of self-esteem, a measure of intensity of smoking behaviour, and then also their educational background. Why smoking behaviour? It was a general sort of feeling about sort of well-being or functioning. Smoking comes up again and again, but it was sort of an indicator of health. Yeah, right. Yeah. They also looked at online dating activity. So on this website, each person is sent through a list of potential matches to their email. And that includes the person's first name, their age and their location. And then you can click on each person to look at their profile. Yeah. So they rated activity as which names were clicked on. So you don't have any photos or any information like that to cloud your judgment. They compared these ratings to a list of the most disliked names that came from a previous study where teachers rated the most unlikable names of the children that they had taught. How how would that be reliable? Yeah, out of like 500 names. It was interesting. Anyway, (laughs) Anyway. so the first study, names that were had negative connotations received less contact. So they received 102% less visits to their page than positive names. Yeah. And they had lower self-esteem, lower education and higher amounts of smoking. Yeah, right. Yeah. Study two, they looked at attractiveness of names. They looked at a rating of attractiveness of a bunch of names. A previous study that had been done where names were rated on a Likert scale of least attractive to most attractive, each name. So they pulled the most popular names most attractive names and the least attractive names. Mm. And they did the same comparisons. Again, they found the same thing, lower interest, lower self-esteem, lower education level, higher smoking. And they found that the life outcomes of these people were mediated by the amount of interpersonal neglect or the amount of clicks that they had on their on their name. Wow. Yep. The last one was about name popularity. So they used the ratings of the top 300 names in this current decade and they standardised that against the most popular names in the birth decade of each participant. Then they did the same analysis comparing popular to unpopular, found the same thing again. Hmm. Yeah, And again, it was mediated by interpersonal neglect. So essentially their sort of conclusions are sort of bad luck the Kevins of the world. <laughs> so Kevin was one of So the... Kevin was an unpopular, unpopular name. Alexander was the most popular name mm-hmm. in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, pretty consistently across the board. Things didn't turn out well for Kevins. Oh, poor Kevin. I know. 
There's so many things I could comment about that. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. And I, I had a look at a few articles and there were ones about sort of uncommon names versus common names and mm. sort of people trusting common names more than uncommon names and things like that. Because, so, you know, my name's Hunter and back in the 1980s, like... There was no one called Hunter. Like, mm. I think it was 27 before I met someone called Hunter. I actually had a look on yeah. the list of popular names because I was curious about where yeah. it sort of fit in. My name was popular in the 15 years before I was born and then rapidly dropped. And yeah. so I only know Amy's that are older than me. Yeah. Not younger. And then you're right, Hunter didn't come in until far later. In yeah. Sort of the top and, 30. Yeah. And then sort of like, so I get a lot of comments now saying, yeah. oh, Hunter's a cool name. <laughs> like, dude, it was definitely not like 20 years ago. Mm. It, was, it was, well, no, 30 years ago, sorry. It was definitely not like, you know, in the comments was like, you know, oh, so what's your first name? Yeah. Good. <laughs> and and you, do, you do wonder about the effects of, it's interesting how names change over time. Yeah. And the popularity of them. And so, I mean, there's that dimension of like common names that are unlikable. Yeah. Versus Uncommon names that are yeah that are likable slash unlikable. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, there's a real difference there, which was what I was interested about this. That it was both popularity and attractiveness of the name and sort of likability. It was a few different dimensions. Maybe so many cultural effects as well. Mm. Fascinating. Do you, and you do wonder about like whether there's a cultural aspect of choosing a name that yeah. relates to kind of I guess you know lower education. Yeah. All those things associated with what you were talking about, which is like, yeah, low, like sort of, poor outcomes. Yeah, socioeconomic kind of variables. So are you saying, actually, is the conclusion of the study that you can judge someone by their name? They weren't that definitive. <laughs> it was essentially the world does. The world the world does. The world maybe does. you shouldn't, yeah. yeah but, right. it, and it's something to be wary of. There was sort of a, a cautionary line towards the end about considering names for your children. Um, with this kind of thing in mind, it was sort of, yeah, uh, maybe people should think carefully <laughs> before they name their children Kevin. So the article that I'm going to talk about now is is the classic things you came across article. Yeah, cool. Right, so the prelude to it was I typed in Seinfeld yep. into the search engine and I was on my way scrolling through a journal to look up an article called Seifeld. Mm-hmm. where they use Seinfeld to teach psychiatric trainees about oh, I've heard delusional that. disorder. Yeah. Right? And so basically like all Elaine's boyfriends had different types of delusional, mm. subtypes of delusional disorder. So I thought that was going to be really interesting. Yeah. And then I came across, uh, now probably there's all these people go, oh, that's really great. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry if you, this is not interesting. I thought this was going to be this is far more interesting. Isn't there also an um, article about that each of the characters represent a different psychological disorder do we need to do a Seinfeld pod I think we might continue (laughs) this is called thrust into the breach psychiatric in a combat zone within one year of residency completion and it's in academic psychiatry 2015 and it's by Vincent Capaldi and Hannah Zembruska how did that pop up in a Seinfeld so I was scrolling through the journal Ah, you had a particular article. Yeah, to get to Seinfeld. So let me just read you the abstract. 
For even the seasoned military physician, the order to deploy into a combat zone is fraught with trepidation and anxiety. Despite expert training in cognitive behavioural techniques and anxiety mitigation measures, newly minted psychiatrists also experience changes in mood and associated affect when notified they'll be deploying shortly after graduating. This article was written by a psychiatrist who deployed to Afghanistan within one year of completing residency. The article discusses the value of military grade, medical education, differences between psychiatric care and training versus deployed setting and resources that are available. The authors both graduated from the National Capital Regional Internal Medicine and Psychiatric Combined Residency Program. So they were especially mm-hmm. in internal medicine and psychiatry. And then and that was in 2012. And then they one deployed to Bagram, Afghanistan in 2013 and the other deployed to Kandahar in Afghanistan in 2013. Wow. So, like, interesting. Yeah, I can see why you stopped. Yeah, like, and you know, I've got this interest about, like, oh, you know, what's it like to work in oncology? Wow, military zone. That sounds really, really interesting. Yeah. And so, it talks about some of the unique challenges. So, one of the things I, I'll, I'll try and list off a whole lot of them because mm-hmm. I think it's kind of interesting. Understanding military culture and customs and courtesies is an absolute necessity in a deployed environment because you have to communicate to patients. Yeah. And you have to communicate to commanders, right? And you need to have a high level of military knowledge and professional competence. And then they talk about that service members are highly skilled in determining the acumen of psychiatrists mm-hmm. on both those things. So, I mean, I would call that that they probably have a good bullshit meter. Yeah. And, you know, so by not being part of the quote-unquote real army can be real disadvantage. Mm-hmm. They sort of divide the article up into several subheadings. One of them is within the breach, which is like learning under fire. Working in these settings is unique, not because of the problems, but because of the austere environment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's similar problems. You know, there's combat stress, which is about 22%. Peer or unit stress, which is about 15%. Home front stress, which is about 35% of problems. Yeah. Right? So, this is saying, well, you know, some of the problems are not really that dissimilar, mm. but, you know, you're a dual agent, right? So, you're treating the patient. Yeah. But then also you have this responsibility to the unit. Yeah, you're sort of assessing risk and capability. That's right. And yeah. so you have to get the commander on side and perhaps involve them in the treatment and perhaps disclose mm. what we would consider confidential information, yeah. which you would never do in a normal environment. They talk about sleep hygiene mm-hmm. as being... Impossible. <laughs> yeah, like the most common issue. Yeah. So 24-hour combat operations, the use of stimulant medications mm-hmm. and substances... There's a, I think it's a book and a TV show called Generation Kill, mm. where that's about the second Iraq war. Yeah. And watch that. They, and they, one of the guys is basically just um, eating guarana mm. and yeah. Red Bulls the entire time. And so they, so that, that's a problem. And then as a psychiatrist, you can't use hypnotic medications, benzos, yeah. antipsychotics, because... Yeah compromises your judgment and perception yeah because quote the need for constant awareness amid the possibility of enemy action yeah right like that's yeah also limited supplies so they talk about cbt for insomnia being very effective mm-hmm. and potentially you might not have done that in your training yeah or much of it yeah and suddenly you're like fuck i've got to do that yeah so they talk about you know ge- geographic separation so marital problems are kind of mm-hmm. one of the big things that come across so there's sort of a strategy of resolving acute distress and improving communication can't really do couples counseling yeah because skype might not be available because of security risks yeah right so and one of the common 
things that service members want to do is want to return home and fix the issue. Mm-hmm. So giving them skills to resolve, de-escalate, helps to, quote, keep them in the fight, end quote, so, and reduce the stress from home. Which also strikes me as being a <coughs> conflict in and of itself if your primary focus is to keep someone in an environment rather than to do what might be best for their mental health or their yeah, ongoing so functioning. Is, yeah, so it's interesting because it's a dual role. Mm. And, I mean, I know I relate everything back to cancer, but it's interesting, like, that there's a little parallel there of, okay, this chemo is stressing someone out, but we need to get them to do it. Yeah. And so there's this uh, pressure to do that. Mm. So it's not a not an uncommon yeah. thing that psychologists will have to come across. And yeah. I imagine it's the same in prison systems and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So they talk about what's interesting was the inverse communication effect. So military service has like intense periods of activity followed by nothing. Yeah. Boredom. And I mean, even if you watch the TV show MASH, they talk mm. about that. Yeah. Right. And you watch that and they're bored, they're drinking. Yeah. And then suddenly they're in surgery for 72 hours. Mm. So that times the modern day advent of Facebook mm-hmm. and, and other instant communication forms revolts in this like paradoxical increased anxiety and conflict because the soldier can contact the spouse a lot. Yeah. And then be like, why aren't they contacting me back? Yeah. And a spouse might actually get more contact with them being deployed. Mm, Than what they would otherwise. Yeah, than what they would otherwise. So that can cause a whole lot of problems. So, and they talk about maybe in the future, communication on deployment might actually be reduced Mm -hmm. to resolve some of those problems. Interesting. Yeah, like fascinating kind of problem to deal with. Let's talk about substance use. Alcohol is banned on Mm -hmm. deployment, but it can be still smuggled in or they use things like cough syrup to get high. Yeah. And then they talk about normal reactions to abnormal environments. People present with like post-traumatic type symptoms, but you don't really want to pathologize it because it could just be what they call combat operational stress reaction mm-hmm. diagnosis, which I'd not heard of before, but it must be a, something that the military talks about that we should look into it. And then saying that using that diagnosis gives more flexibility because if you get a diagnosis of say PTSD, or something, then that could restrict security clearances in the mm-hmm. future. So, and then that would decrease people attending psychiatry. Yeah. Which is not what you want. Yeah. And so they talk about the importance of normalizing behavioral health treatment. Instead of going, come and see the shrink, why don't you come along to the so- soldier performance enhancement program, which includes <laughs> sleep hygiene. Marketing. Yeah. And actually, I've heard about that same kind of marketing process with prostate cancer patients, mm. which is, we're going to talk about sleep hygiene, not yeah. talking about feelings. Yeah. We're going to come along to the information session, yeah. not talking about feelings, yeah, but then yeah. they get to talk about feelings. Yeah. Difficulty getting medications, using virtual psychiatry, but then there's a whole lot of issues with that. And, you know, and sort of like things like having to medevac suicidal patients. Yeah. And then also talking about self-care for the provider. So, you know, that as a psychiatrist, you could face exactly the same issues as the patients, mm. as the soldiers there. And then also you'd be isolated because you're treating peers. Yeah. So if you're better. And you're not within that team yeah yeah Yeah. and so i mean so this is kind of specific but then they also talk about well you know there's a lot of lessons to be learned for like treating people in remote environments yeah there's a lot of parallels of being that external person within fairly um confined world yeah 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 interesting yeah i was i was i was it was fascinating and made me think of a whole lot of war films Mm. yeah Hmm. very good all right so number five 
children's perceptions of their imaginary companions and the purposes they serve, an exploratory study in the UK mm-hmm. by Karen Majors in 2013 in the journal Childhood, another single name journal for the evening. I like the idea of like single name journals. It just, it just makes our podcast just flow much quicker. Absolutely. So they talk about how a half to two thirds of children report having an imaginary friend either currently or in the past mm-hmm. and the rates of reporting that declines as it gets to sort of later childhood. Did, Did you, you have one? That's what I was going to ask you. No. I think I tried to have one and I couldn't do it. I did a lot of talking to my soft toys and pets, cats. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of sort of yep. cat talk, yep. but not an imaginary no. friend. Did you say you tried? But Yeah, because I think I knew someone who did. and then but no. I just didn't. Hmm. <laughs> um, so it's been thought of in all different ways by different developmental theorists and researchers. Earlier on, it was considered to be quite an immature period, say by Piaget. And then it's sort of evolved a bit to be viewed as a high-level imaginary activity and something that has sort of clinical relevance in that it can help the child meet needs that they're not getting elsewhere, can be a coping strategy, and there's some evidence that it enhances resilience and leads to improved outcomes at around age 18. Yeah, right. Because I I was going to say, I think my loose understanding of it would be that it's about the child meeting some kind of need mm. and it's actually kind of healthy in a way yeah like because it's like they're trying to do something with it it like helps them survive actually i think i've even heard about that in terms of like sort of extreme survival yeah cases absolutely of people who like you know floating in the ocean stuck yeah in the wild, stuck on a mountain that kind of stuff and imagining that someone was there helping them helping them yeah, yeah exactly adaptive. Mm. So their idea was to talk to children who currently have imaginary friends and find out about their perception of those friends. So they interviewed eight children who currently had imaginary friends. They were aged between five and 11 years and there were five girls and three boys. They used semi-structured interviews and asked about these imaginary friends and then details about them and their interactions. So they wanted to know, you know, who they were, how old they were, uh, how they spoke to them, all of those kind of things. Mm. So the characteristics of the companions, they were pretty diverse. They were both animals and human. I noticed that there were a lot of horses in there from the girls. Seven out of the eight had more than one imaginary friend. And there was a mixture of friends who were based on real people. So either sort of versions of real life friends or siblings that they wanted and didn't have or in one case girl who imagined her grandmother who had passed away Mm. and there were also sort of anthropomorphized versions of toys and then tv characters as well they were mostly independent and had their own kind of will and so the children's talked about how sometimes their actions weren't things that they liked or wanted them to do that they had to be sort of a negotiation Hmm. And the older children spoke with far more secrecy about their imaginary friends. Because they would know it's a bit more weird. Yeah. No wonder whether the negotiation bit is about them learning how to assert dominance. Yeah, yeah, sort of navigating social situations. Yeah, and feeling good about the fact that they negotiated that outcome with yeah. their imaginary friend. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of them spoke about feeling like the imaginary friend was important or needed, that they wouldn't be able to cope unless they had mm. this friend. And a lot of them spoke about characteristics of the friend that were similar to themselves. So they'd sort of yeah created oh. someone similar to them. In terms of purpose, they spoke about overcoming loneliness, boredom, or providing entertainment. They also spoke about having someone, a good friend, 
to talk to and someone that they could trust more than someone who was real. And this really stuck out to me from my work with kids when often it's been that they haven't been able to think of anyone that they could trust or that the people that they come up with are ghosts, their own reflection, Mm. um, animals, um, imaginary friends, things like that, soft toys, and struggle to think of adults that they could talk to. So that certainly fit with my experience, especially of sort of early to mid-primary schoolers who kind of feel a bit disconnected. Uh, They found that their imaginary friends were supportive of their problems and helped them problem solve. So helped them work out things like how to swim across a a river or how to sort out a a fight with their friend. And then they also, for some of them, it sort of built a sort of wish fulfillment kind of thing. So Mm. some of the girls really wanted a pet or wanted a horse. And so they had this imaginary horse. A couple of them really wanted a sibling. And so imagined a sibling yeah I found it really interesting quite sweet as well (laughs) they sort of talked about what you were mentioning about whether it's just a part of normal development so sort of like having a transitional object or Mm. something like that or whether it's something that children who are going through a tough time bring in as a coping resource yeah so they talked particularly about trauma and things like that where the kids might feel quite isolated and need to bring in something else to help them manage through that period yeah, and then I'm pretty sure I've seen at least one movie or TV show where the character development bit is about the individual tearfully saying goodbye to the imaginary friend. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and letting that go. Yeah. And then that sort of signifies that they've improved. Yeah, that they're ready to sort of move on. Move on with their life mm. and become an integrated whole, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go, imaginary friends. <laughs> That's a nice, sweet thing. Well, we're going to take a break. Yep. And uh, we will come back. And go down the rabbit hole of Star Wars. Excellent. You listen to Two Shrink Spot. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. So uh, you're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're listening to, give us a star rating on iTunes. Well, not one star. Like five would be great. Four. Four. Should, five. Should, should we five. should aim for five and then people will be annoyed by that and put it as four. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you could review us if you are enjoying the show. Please subscribe to us. Uh, we try and do a pod every week. And tell all of your friends, both real and imaginary. Yes. If they're imaginary, imagine that they've got an iPhone or similar that they can listen to. Buy them an iPhone yeah. and download it on that. <laughs> Um, If you're interested in the articles we talk about in this pod or other pods, go to our website, twoshrinkspod.com. We always have the links. Also, we put the links in the podcast description. And on the weeks that we do that properly, you should actually be able to click through to it. And otherwise, just send us an email. Say hi. Tell us something you want us to talk about. Yes. We have an ever-evolving list of things that one day we'll get to. Yes. And (laughs) and on, I think, pretty much a Monday night or a Tuesday night, Amy rings me and then we decide on a whole new topic. Yeah. So, so you could be a part of that process. How exciting. Let's <laughs> see. And that's about it. Yeah. Can I hear about Star Wars? Let's do it. So we're back. Sorry, I was drinking champagne. <laughs> well, we refilled our champagne. Hmm. So in the first episode of this podcast, I talked about the Death Star, analyzing Death Star for weaknesses. I remember. And in it, I made mention to the fact that someone had done 
some research about Anakin, <laughs> Anakin Skywalker and borderline personality. Fred, uh, are we going there? We are going there. Yes. A friend of mine, uh, Ingrid Morgan, psychologist, she messaged me and said that we should, she wanted to hear more about that. So, Ingrid. Thank you, Ingrid. This is not particularly for you because it's really just about for me, but you encourage it. So, um, <laughs> you're to blame. <laughs> so, Eric Boy and colleagues wrote a letter to the editor of Psychiatry Research in 2011 titled, Is Anakin Skywalker Suffering from Borderline Personality Disorder? So they did a psychodynamically orientated exploration of his life Hmm. and his history emphasizes elements of BPD. So the absence of father and early separation with Mm -hmm. his mother, use of defense mechanisms such as splitting, projection, infantile illusions of omnipotence, Hmm. difficulties in emotional and impulse regulation. Definitely. And dysfunctional experiences of self and others. Hmm. They suggest that he fulfills six of the nine DSM four criteria for BPD. Hmm. So impulsivity and difficulty controlling his anger. Yep. Alternated between idealization and devaluation of his Jedi mentors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Uh, permanently afraid of losing his wife Padme, mm-hmm. who, Natalie Portman, studied psychology. Oh. It's all linking up. That's all linking up. Uh, makes uh, and he makes frantic efforts to avoid her abandonment, as and goes as far as betraying his Jedi mentors to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. Right? They say he has two dissociative events brought on by stress. He slaughters Tuscan raiders, although mm-hmm. they call them Tuscan people in the article. It's Tuscan raiders or sand people. Yeah, one or the other. It's one or the other. Guys, come on. Amateur <laughs> hour. Anyway, um, post his mother's death. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he slaughters younglings and then voices paranoid thoughts okay. regarding his his wife and the Jedi and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I was a little doubtful about those two examples. I'll get to that doubt in just a second. Okay. Uh, and he has uncertainty about who he is, who he was, turns to the dark side, and they sort of say that he changes his name and suggests identity disorder. So he changes his name from Anakin Skywalker mm-hmm. to Darth Vader. Although Emperor Palpatine assigns... The name. So is it really about him or about someone else's no. issues? Was there nothing about kind of risk-taking behaviour? Sort of, you they know, should the have been risk-taking behaviour because episode Come two on. is doing crazy stuff and Obi-Wan's just like, oh, man, like, yeah. oh. So it looks like he might re- meet criteria even if you scrap that. Other one. Yeah, anyway. So, <laughs> and they finish off, say, you know, you could use this in teaching BPD, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. De Rocha and colleagues in 2012 write a letter to the editor Revisiting the Anakin Skywalker diagnostic, transcending the diagnostic criteria. They disagree. They they Mm. say it's difficult to come to a definitive diagnosis. Difficulties with emotional and impulse control are commonly seen in teenagers, which he was, Mm -hmm. and in other cluster B psychopathologies. Mm. No evidence for dissociation because dissociation includes disruptions in consciousness, memory, identity, and perception. Mm -hmm. That was not seen. So... Like, because he talks about slaughtering the Tuscan Rangers, yeah. right? He's not losing any sense of that. No, no, and and they 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 say, oh, you know, well, the paranoid thoughts were just for cinematic effect. I don't know. Well, I, I think they were pretty real. If you start that, then where do you end up? Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm. While he changed his name, he didn't have these disturbances of identity. It just it was just the name was changed. Like his identity was pretty much the same. It kind of just sort of doubled down a bit more. Sort became, of like bit more mean yeah but it wasn't like completely different yeah i would have thought yeah so creating his celebrity persona rather than 
a complete personality. That's it. Shift, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, this is where I love it. It's like, this is an academic journal. Yeah. Master Yoda points out <laughs> that, that Anakin is too You're going to need to pause old. for a minute. <laughs> he's too old to start the training. And perhaps at this plus, these basic characteristics of difficulty controlling his anger results in him turning to the dark side, not as part of his fears of abandonment. Right? I feel like that's far too long a sentence for Yoda. Yeah. Well, Would you too, like it's, to? It's too in order, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, plus these behaviours. Abandonment he has. Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> Abandonment he has. Split, <laughs> split the mental health team, I will. Yes. <laughs> Rest of the pod will be conducted in Yoda's week. <laughs> oh, God. Could you imagine? Uh, uh, plus these behaviours in young Anakin are not seen in the adult Darth Vader is what they're still saying. So, so they, thinking more of like a developmental disorder? Well, they suggest that his case could be used in the discussion of definitively diagnosing personality disorders. Mm-hmm. They suggest he's probably got elements of antisocial PD or like maybe cluster B personality mm-hmm. and also evidence of a diathesis stress model of etiology of psychopathology and so that the environment mm-hmm. is responsible in the change in his behaviour and personality, mm-hmm. which is kind of thing. Nice. Bowie and colleagues then respond... <laughs> Excellent. And agree that Anakin hasn't been clinically assessed, so no definitive diagnosis could ever be reached. Mm -hmm. They say that turning to the dark side could have been associated with stress, but this does not preclude him having intense fears of abandonment. Mm. They discuss the criteria versus dimensional view of uh, personality disorders Mm -hmm. and agree that he does demonstrate cluster B traits and point out that DSM-4 often requires a clinician to choose a diagnostic category. Mm. So, very wise. Very wise. Then in 2015, <laughs> in in the same journal, mm-hmm. uh, Anthony Tobias and colleagues follow up Darth Vulcan in support of Anakin Skywalker suffering from BPD. <laughs> so mm-hmm. This is just pre The Force Awakens. And they contrast Spock from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I feel very, very uncertain about. Mixing these two worlds, but anyway, let's yeah. go with it. Yeah. They, so they contrast Spock with Anakin Skywalker. Both had early maternal separation, but Spock had a stabilizing father figure mm. who encourages the embrace of pure logic. This interplay between logic and emotion is sort of central to Spock's character analysis. Contrasting with Anakin, no influence of a stabilizing father figure, mm-hmm. and his fate takes a different path. So. <sighs> So, so Anakin re-experiences the abandonment of the death of his mother when Padme dies in childbirth. She is a displaced mother object who strengthened his super ego, and so he loses his ability to assess the outside world properly. His search for a father figure increases the risk of victimization by Palpatine, who is mm. the, unbeknownst the evil emperor. His grief fixates in that his knowledge he's going to lose. Padme fixates in denial, which is like there's this resurrection thing, mm-hmm. which. The emperor, I'm amazed that you you're nodding that you know this story, like you've kept that under wraps. I figured that it was best not to fuel my Star Wars I, thing. I, yeah, I feel anyway. like you know, naive observer is the best. Way that's to go. it. That's it. Um, I've cracked you eventually. Anyway, so so anyway, so Anakin denial. Yes, maybe we can resurrect Padme and anger. Right. So this is a classic kind of grief reaction. I have a great discussion about how this represents cas- There's a classic conflict between the id, which is the dark side and emotion and superego, you know, pure logic, that kind of stuff. So the id, the emotion, 
which Anakin, t- you know, taps into, and the superego is this internalization of moral standards, and that might be the, the, the logic kind of mm-hmm. element. Anakin, low ego strength, gives into the id, whereas Spock, high ego strength, because Resist of his, it. Resisted, is able to deal with the demands of the id and superego. Uh, they also suggest that Spock's pure logic could be formulated as emotional numbness, mm-hmm. as a symptom of PTSD. Mm. Or it could be uh, as part of persistent complex bereavement disorder. So it's opening up a whole new diagnostic debate. Star Wars done. Yeah. <laughs> Unless someone writes back. <laughs> well, there's a whole lot of... I, I, like like Kylo Ren, mm. he's got problems, man. Yeah. So maybe there'll be a new generation of Star Wars pathology. Yeah, and then also Ray, Like her story's not... It's not, it's well not rosy. No. no, there's there's, mm, there's gaps. And I I've resisted looking online mm. to actually. Ironically, my wife, who's not a huge Star Wars fan, has read more about Star Wars conspiracy theories than than I have. To hold it over you, or just, no, she's out just of enjoyment. Mm. Yeah, anyway. mm. <laughs> <laughs> What's your article? All right. So my article is The Spot Effect, People Spontaneously Prefer Their Own Theories by Greg and colleagues in 2017 in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology. The thing that sort of hooked me into this was um, the introduction where they list a whole bunch... This is not Spot, the children's story. It is not. Sorry to disappoint. Aliens pop up. Is that comforting? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, So what hooked me in was the introduction where they talk about a whole bunch of biases that we have about perceiving our own behavior and expertise so they sort of say that we're biased to judge ourselves as better at things than other people so you know 90 percent of people say that they're in the top 50 percent of drivers for example quarter of students put themselves in the top one percent of social ability they also say that incarcerated people rate themselves as nicer than the average community member and no less law-abiding so there's this <laughs> gen- <laughs> yeah that's what really got me so there's this general kind of bias there's also a bias in the evaluation of people or things close to us so for example parents consistently evaluate their own kids as better than other children and this has been found to be in proportion to how favorably they view themselves yeah, yeah, that is so true. Like, because you're like, oh, my baby is the most beautiful baby, blah blah blah. Yeah, and then if you look at your child's photo, like photo of your child, like maybe about eighteen months after that photo, mm, you're yeah. like, it just looks like a baby. <laughs> yeah, entirely biased. Uh, we also prefer our own group to other groups, even if we're arbitrarily assigned. I don't to like other Star Wars fans. Yeah, <laughs> noted. <laughs> um, and. It's also found in our preference for inanimate objects. So we've been found to like the letters that are in our own name more than other letters of the alphabet, for oh, example. Totally. Which is so ludicrous when you kind of list off those things. Sorry, in a way, like it, we're just we're ludicrous creatures the, anyway. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they talk about how this might apply theoretically and that they'd like to find out whether we prefer our own theories to other people's theories mm-hmm. about what things are going on. So they do three studies. I'll talk about the first one and then the others are kind of replicating and ruling out things that might have influenced it. So they got 331 participants to consider a scenario where two alien species are living on a distant planet. One is the predator and one is the prey. And they have to work out which one's predator, which one's prey, and to rate how truthful the story is. So at first it starts off 
that it's sort of a general description. So and the two aliens are on the one planet? Yep, two aliens on the one we planet. We work out which one's predator prey. Okay. Predator prey, yep. And you're asked to rate the truthfulness of the story. Yeah. So they rate that. Then and do the predators come to Earth and Schwarzenegger has to fight them off? No, it's more of a kind of a, they try and communicate through a series of Rorschach tests. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And then like a linguist. Yeah, and a in physicist. a giant coffee pod. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's what happens, yeah. So <laughs> each time they present a Rorschach, <laughs> no, um, so they add additional... <laughs> So they add additional evidence and after each one they re-rate. So it's things like, you know, Alien A, which has a name, which I can't remember. Heptapod. Has, <laughs> has large sharp teeth. And then you have to re-rate if it's true or false that one species is the predator. Yeah. Uh, and then it's, you know, they've got large teeth and night-dwelling creatures, then you rate again, that sort of thing. So give them more information each time. More information each time. And in the wording of the questions is an arbitrary link to the participant. So it's either saying that a researcher named Alex is observing this behaviour between these two species, or you see alien A has bigger teeth than alien B. Yeah. Yeah. And so what they found was that the level of belief in the scenarios changed as people got more facts. So as they heard more facts that supported the original statement, they believed it more. Mm -hmm. And then as they heard contradictory evidence, it dropped. But they also found that people were significantly more likely to view the statements as true if it was ascribed to them, not to Alex, the researcher. Yeah. So they decided to look at it again, change the alien names in case people had an issue with the alien names. Conducted it face-to-face. <laughs> so is that serious? Yep. Okay. <laughs> yep. I'm serious, yep. Conducted it face-to-face in case there was some kind of like online bias and added a third condition where you where some people were just told that this was happening with the aliens, not yeah. that someone observed it. Essentially, found the same thing. Again, your own theory is rated as more truthful than either someone else or it just existing in the world. Not ascribed mm. to anyone. Then they did it again. <laughs> To check whether the researcher name influenced the results. Yeah. We're all linking up nicely to the earlier article. And so they asked whether either the participant's name was Alex or they knew anyone named Alex. And they compared these people to everyone else and found that knowledge of an Alex didn't change your rating. And it stayed the same. They also added in indices of self-enhancement. So a measure of narcissism, of deceptive self-enhancement, of overclaiming or biased argument evaluation. And they found that none of these kind of tendencies to rate yourself as higher than others influenced it at all. Hmm. So it was just something that was present in the general population anytime they ascribed you. There were also no gender differences. Hmm. So there you go. So we are biased to believe ourselves more than others, which kind of fits. I'm always right. The, the other comment I had about that study yeah. was listeners who listened to previous pod on OCPD mm-hmm. and Amy and I giving each other stick about psychologists having OCPD. Yep. Perfect that example. Is, that is a classic example of like, let's just comb through the minutiae of yep. different perpetra- not perpetrations. Uh, permutations permutations yeah and then rule them out yeah exactly and i i did wonder as i got halfway through whether this was going to continue like they'd said three studies but i thought hmm could add in a little bit more i'm thinking sort of you know socio-demographic variables 
change the name of the planet, change the order of whether it's teeth or, you know, claws first. So many things, but I, I really appreciated how thorough uh, they it were. Sounds, it's just it's it gorgeous. Sounds incredibly thorough. Yeah. So the article I've got is personality of politicians. A big five survey of American legislators. This is in Ooh. our uh, journal, <laughs> Journal de Jour, from several pods ago. Personality and individual differences whoop, whoop. in 2017 by Richard Hanania. So shout out to Jody Avigan and the 538 crew of Claire Malone, Nate Silver, and Wizkid Harry Enton. They they do a politics podcast which yep. I listened to obsessively and listened to obsessively last year. You guys are great. This is kind of two drinks pod not to you guys <laughs> basically they in this study they gave u.s politicians mm-hmm. a personality survey and then compared that with a general population survey of the same things so what level of politician are we talking they say uh american legislator okay i'll get to the method in just a sec yeah. and then like so they compared it between general population and legislator mm-hmm. and then they compared republican Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. So, and to see whether there's personality differences between it. So, they've looked at personality, you know, is influential on political participation, voting, attending rallies, party identification, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. So, so, first of all, they've suggested they've found previously that conservatives tend to score high on conscientiousness. Mm-hmm. Openness to experience, which can also be called intellect or imagination, is a, so it seems to be associated with liberal mm-hmm. liberalism. Interesting fact, if you're listening overseas, is that Australians, like compared with America, we drive on the left side of the road yep. versus the right side of the road. And the Liberal Party in Australia is actually the right-wing party. Yeah, conservative. <laughs> so yep. we do things backwards. Yeah. In these relationships we found in the US, but also in Germany, Belgium and Poland. There was a pre- previous study of lawmakers from three states and they used a single question to measure the big five and they found no difference between Democrats and Republicans mm-hmm. except on conscientiousness. And when they replaced... Replace that with ideology rather than party, so rating of ideology, that conservatives are more conscientious, emotionally stable, while being less open and agreeable. Okay. So, but they didn't compare the general population. Mm -hmm. And then they also found legislators have been found to be more extroverted than general population. Makes sense. Yeah, because like a politician... Needs to be able to talk. Yeah. Yeah, like you're not going to be a successful politician... Unless you can make others like and trust you. Yeah. Right? The findings on agreeableness, openness, and conscientiousness are more mixed. Mm-hmm. And the research does indicate that politicians are relatively high in emotional stability. So you kind of need to be able to weather, like you think about Obama. Yeah. Right? I mean, opposite to Trump, like yeah. no emotional but stability. Yeah. He's got neurological problems as well as narcissism. Mm. But, you know, politicians are high in emotional stability. Those on the right are more conscientious and emotionally stable. While the counterparts on the left tend to be more open and agreeable. Mm-hmm. So they did a, so they emailed 7,000 legislators. Wow. Uh, and then they had a control group, right? How many legislators do you reckon they got out of that? <laughs> Two. No. <laughs> I, I think it would be quite low. 278. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a 4%, 4% response rate. Yeah. Which, I mean, they have some interesting arguments about why they think that that might not matter so much. Mm-hmm. They talk about that there seemed to be a, a workload effect so that there was a strong inverse relationship between the natural log of a state population size and the response rate from this, from that state. Mm-hmm. So, of like a 0.68 correlation, hmm. which is a pretty high, high correlation yeah. for psychology. And a few other things. Cutting to the results, 
they found that politicians scored lower on what they call intellect, which I think is the openness, openness to experience, with the results being more pronounced amongst men. So they talk about sort of saying, well, you know, being a politician might be unappealing to people who've got a desire for artistic fulfillment and new experiences, mm-hmm. right? They talk about that maybe it would weed out people with more unconventional thought and behavioural patterns. Mm. So uh, politicians were slightly higher than average with regards to conscientiousness. So this is like that moral standards and doing things properly. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that that would be... That, that kind of makes sense. Legislators are more agreeable in the general public. The largest difference between the public and politicians was on emotional stability and extroversion. It appears that success in po- uh, politics universally requires a willingness to engage with others and maintain a sense of calm, which mm-hmm. is what I was talking about in, in the face of disappointment or personal attacks. Yeah. Comparing politicians to one another, we found the Republicans are more conscientiousness, uh, mm-hmm. conscientious, so doing things properly, moral yeah. standards, and score lower on openness to experience, mm-hmm. which kind of would fit with a conservative ideology yeah. and less agreeable. Mm-hmm. And, and then they looked at it by ideology and, and that changed the results slightly. It's kind of interesting because if you actually look at, if you think about, say, the modern, what's this, 20, well, it's 2017, so mm. a bit older data. But I mean, if you think about the modern Republican Party yeah. and their complete abandonment of morals yeah. <laughs> it's kind of yeah interesting. it's an interesting it's interesting but i mean like I, I mean i sort of say like abandonment of morals but abandonment of standards that they hold yeah. I, mean, I guess it'd be interesting to see like whether there was a you could do a measure of hypocrisy yeah uh, and see what sort of difference between belief in morals or belief that you were following you were following consistency actually of. and like linking back to your study like that kind of thing of like oh my thing's right but your thing's not yeah uh, and and you would imagine that politicians of either stripe would be pretty high on that pretty high on that so i thought that was really interesting interesting yeah i'm always interested when you see personality stuff that plays out in actual group yeah and has that sort of flow on effect into society and into impacts on other people and hmm. yeah that kind interesting. of stuff so yeah, anyway, that, that's my me nerding out with politics. Nice. <laughs> so my last one is are modern health worries associated with medical conspiracy theories by Larac and Furnham in 2007 in the Journal of Psychosomatic Research. This is for me, isn't it? It is for you, <laughs> yes. So they define modern health worries as being uh, the perceived risk to your health from technology changes and features of modern life. And medical conspiracy theories as theories that contradict scientific evidence that are sort of characterized by skepticism of modern medicine and of belief in malicious causes or or impacts of technology or more specifically medical technology. So things like believing that vaccinations cause autism or that fluoride is added to water to mask chemical dumping Mm. into waterways. And there's there's this huge thing you don't hear about much, but fluoride people. Yeah. There's a huge amount of them that just think that fluoride's like the devil. Exactly. And it's just like delusional intensity. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) And and on the former, Wi-Fi. People believing that Wi-Fi is bad. Yeah. And when actually... The technology around Wi-Fi radio signals yeah. is really, really old. I know this because I have a father who's an engineer, yes. electrical engineer. <laughs> yeah. But people go, oh, you know, Wi-Fi. No. Yeah, absolutely. Fanatically believe it. Yeah. So they did an online survey with 335 participants. They got them to fill out a modern health worries scale, which covers four factors of toxic interventions, environmental pollution, 
tainted food and uh, radiation. They got them to fill in a measure of medical conspiracy theories. They got them to rate their trust in doctors. They got them to provide information about their use of complementary medicine and their perception of their own health and mental health in relation to peers, so whether they were better or worse off than their peers, plus demographic information. Uh, They did a whole bunch of correlations, which I won't go into. I'll just go over the sort of broad... I mean, we can we can spend the next ten minutes, and I'll give you all of the p values. But <laughs> and then we have to go back and talk about them adjusted for Bronferoni. Exactly. Yeah, we could be here for days. <laughs> I'll go for the regression. Okay, yeah? go for that. So that medical conspiracy theory belief was the strongest predictor of modern health worry, with a correlation of about point three four to point four nine, depending on which way they put it into the regression. Mm -hmm. They found that the other variables were significant, but they had a far lower contribution. They sort of had a cumulative effect. Whereas the, you know, conspiracy theory belief was significant in its own right. So in terms of the other variables that contributed, they found that higher modern health worries were were found in those who use complementary medicine. For those who perceived... I know, it's a nice callback. (laughs) (laughs) For those who perceive their mental health as worse than their peers, but no difference in terms of how they perceive their physical health. And for those who were Mm, higher... It's like an anxiety code mechanism. Yeah, exactly. So they kind of conceptualized it as a mental health symptom. Mm, mm. Yeah. Which is very, very... Like, that fits exactly with my cancer experience. I thought you'd like it. It was also higher for those with greater degrees of religiosity and for older participants. So it all kind of fit with with my perception of that sort of thing. Yeah, so there you go. Conspiracy theories. For our last article, Mm -hmm. I've got one for you. So I was thinking uh, you like cats. I do indeed. What's your favourite psychological theory? Of all of them? The, The one that keeps coming up on the pod. Attachment. Domestic cats do not show signs of secure attachment to their owners. <laughs> they don't? No. Oh, actually, mine doesn't. Yeah, continue. It's written by Alice Potter and Daniel Mills mm-hmm. in PLOS1. Mm-hmm. This is a 2015 paper. Yep. It's dense. This is a impressive Solid. Piece. This yeah. Is, this is an impressive piece of research, and I am absolutely not going to do it any kind of justice at all. I wonder if there's something about cat people and the sort of thoroughness of their research. Well, uh, I'll look into it. I'm not. I'm not sure because they do. They do point out that there was methodological issues in prior research into attachment styles of cats. Right. Yep. So they've gone and done the definitive study. Okay. So maybe it's that unique combination: cat person plus attachment person. Uh, Look, you'll have to provide insight on that because I'm a dog person. So. No. And yet, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. They start off saying the domestic cat has recently passed the dog as the most popular companion animal within Europe. Easy of care, ability to live in a small residence, a capacity to cope with being left alone for long periods of time, mm-hmm. identified as reasons for popularity. You can see some have suggested that cats are the ideal companions for owners who work long hours. Mm-hmm. However, there are some evidence that some cats may show signs of separation distress mm-hmm. in the absence of their owner. It's been suggested that the cat-owner bond may be a form of attachment similar to which exists between a dog 
or a child and its primary care <laughs> provider. They're the same, dogs yeah. and sheep. So, look, they have a really lovely description of attachment. Mm-hmm. You know, attached individuals seek to maintain proximity and contact with the attachment figure. Attached individuals become distressed when involuntarily separated and showing signs of pleasure and return. Mm-hmm. Yada, yada, yada. So, they talk about that there's this thing called the Ainsworth strain situation test. Yeah. Right, so the procedure involves placing the subject in an unfamiliar route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a strange situation, provokes insecurity, together with a carer and a stranger. And then followed by a series of episodes with separation from and reunions with the carer and the stranger. And so you can imagine that like you, you see your carer and mm. you're happier, yeah. less response to the stranger. You show signs of distress when the care is not there. Yeah. That kind of stuff would show secure attachment. Mm-hmm. So this has been done. So it was originally developed for mother-infant mm-hmm. attachment. It's been looked at in chimpanzees, hmm. dogs, and hand-reared wolves. Hand-reared wolves. <laughs> That's it. Hmm. So, um, Are you sure you're not a hand-reared wolf person? <laughs> Look, I could be. You could be. I could be. You've never met Professor, the right wolf. Professor Lip. That's <laughs> it. Yes, that's it. I've only, only a foot reared wolf, so it's anyway. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> no one knows what it means. Um, something I thought was really cute about this was they talked about sort of behaviours that cats could show, mm-hmm. right? And they talked about aloe rubbing and or aloe grooming mm-hmm. as being affiliative behaviours, so... I thought that was great because yeah. I only know Love what it. aloe means because there's an allografed stem cell transplant, right? For blood, blood hematological. That's specialized knowledge. Hematological <laughs> disorder. Cancer invades everything, dude. Yeah. Let's just say, you know, the, the, therefore it's clear that cats have the capacity to form intra, social, intraspecific relationships, and this may underpin the form of relationship that they form with humans, mm-hmm. especially those whom they share a home with. It's reasonable to examine whether the typical bond shown by pet cats towards their owners involves a form of secure attachment that provides safety and security. Mm-hmm. So there was a previous study that showed that there was attachment between cats and humans. Mm-hmm. I've underlined methodological flaws in that study, mm-hmm. and then I've written detail, exclamation point, exclamation right. point, exclamation point. If you want to look at a thorough takedown of, of a research design, mm-hmm. this is the one. Really, really, like really, really interesting. I'm not going to go through it. Yeah. So basically, they wanted to re-examine this issue in a way that addresses all the concerns that they had using a particular research design, mm-hmm. using an improved and counterbalanced modification of the Ainsworth test. Okay. That's what they did. Classic kind of subject participant section. Mm-hmm. So they had the participants breed, <laughs> <laughs> whether they were neutered, yep. by age. The length of time that they've been living in the house, access to the outside mm-hmm. versus inside, and their owner employment. Right. So, this is like a room with some toys in it, mm-hmm. stranger and owner yep. enter, talk, then the owner leaves, then the stranger leaves, mm-hmm. then one of them comes back, the other one comes back, yeah. and then they reverse the order of that stuff. I mean, it, it, can, I, can I take a de- guess at the dominant attachment style for most cats? Uh, yeah. I think avoidant. Avoidant. And how, w- how would that be shown? Uh, sort of a disinterest in the owner's return. Yeah. A sort of aloof thing. I mean, I say most cats because mine does not fall into that category, but... It's the uncommon name that you've got of your cat. Yeah. The unpopular. Yeah, yeah that's the issue. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they talked about sort of three 
attachments. So there's things that they could sets of behaviors that mm-hmm. they thought would be reliable enough to look at. So proximity, contact seeking, so proximate owner or stranger following and approach, physical contact with that the owner or the stranger mm-hmm. or marking the owner or stranger. There's yeah. a secure base effect, exploration, locomotion, passive behaviors or social play, distress when separated by say vocalization or approaching the door or vigilance, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. The results kind of, they just, they weren't, they were not happy with them. Look, long story short, overall, the response of the cats indicated that the test environment was generally adequate for invoking the typical scenario Mm -hmm. for the demonstration of the thing. But specific results indicate that many aspects of the behavior of the cats in this test are not consistent with the characteristics of attachment for two main reasons. Firstly, the behavior aspects of the cats are not reliable enough to be Mm -hmm. used in an evaluation of attachment, so just unreliable data. And secondly, even amongst those measures which are temporarily robust, the predictions are not met, except for the case of vocalization, mm-hmm. if it's a proximity, proxy of distress, but they didn't think that that was alone sufficient enough to imply a secure attachment. Hmm. Do you think that if they'd done it in the cat's own home, that that would have addressed some of the issue given that cats don't like to be moved. Future research. Yeah, I feel like I need to conduct this. Because I feel like that's a big jarring thing for a cat being yep. moved location, let alone being put in a room where there's been other cats. Yeah. Well, so they talk about that. that so I, I, they don't, from what I read, I skimmed through most of the discussion, but what I read that they, they didn't talk about that. But they did talk about that the previous study, I think, was in Mexico and that all those cats were kept indoors, mm-hmm. whereas the majority of the cats in their thing had access to outdoors. Maybe that potentially can be influencing, I don't know. Mm-hmm. They say, we do not reject that cats may have social preferences, nor that some cats may form this type of attachment in certain circumstances, nor do we wish to imply that cats do not form some form of affectionate social relationship or bond <laughs> with their owners. Only that a relationship with a primary caregiver is not typically characterized by preference for that individual based on them providing safety and security to the cat. <sighs> I'm off to do my own research. <laughs> so you're not the maternal cat figure that you thought you were? I'm not so sure about that. Can I now list the ways? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for listening. We've had lots of fun. Lots of fun doing this show and lots of fun doing the last 10 shows as well. Uh, nine shows. Yeah, it's all adding up. Uh, next time, Hunter will be joining you all on his lonesome. Well, with a friend that, that isn't me. But <laughs> I'll be back for the 12th one. Yeah, Annoying it'll, Hunter. It'll be about anger. Yeah. And dealing with anger. <laughs> And repairing relationships. (laughs) (laughs) You've listened to Two Shrinks Pod. See you later. See ya.